continuing our series uh, through the Psalms. We'll be in Psalm 3 this morning. Uh, and I believe if you are following along with us in the Pew Bible, that is on page 448. Uh, I looked at that just before I came up, but my memory gets shorter and shorter every day. Um, I get stupider and stupider, it seems. So nonetheless, uh, if that's on 448, great. If it's on some other page, great. But nonetheless, we're going to read Psalm 3 together and, um, and then um, spend some time looking at it. So this is the word of the Lord. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Selah. Let's pray. Father, we come in the name of Jesus, your Son, our King. And we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you have promised to do. We thank you that even in the midst of circumstances which overwhelm us, your people, that you are our great hope, that you are our shield, that you are the one who lifts our head. You are the only one who will deliver us, your people, because you have delivered us, your people. We ask that right now that as we look at your word, that you would um, convict, that you would comfort, that you would change our hearts, and that you would lead us to the places that you desire us to be. And Father, if there are any in this room right now, and I'm sure that there are, that have yet to embrace Jesus as King, as Savior, as Lord, that by a work of your Spirit, you would draw them to yourself. And Lord, you know that we pray this not just for ourselves in this, in this place, but we pray that you would be drawing men and women and boys and girls all over this great city to yourself that you would be building your church in Syracuse and in central New York, in Onondaga County, in Madison County, Oswego County, Cayuga County, Cortland County, and that you would be glorifying yourself for your namesake and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Psalm 3 um, is the first of the psalms that we get into outside of Psalm 1 and 2, um, that are what we would say are non-introductory. So we've, we've said that Psalm 1 and 2 serve for us as an introduction into this great book, right? And so the Psalms, uh, as Levi has mentioned, 
150 um, prayers and or songs sung to the Lord or prayed to the Lord, and, um, and, and one and two serve as an introduction to us, explaining to us who the righteous man is and, um, and the expectation of this righteous king. Um, and uh, if, if, you're, if this is your first week with us in this series, uh, the first two weeks we handed this half sheet out. Um, it's just got some good information for you. Uh, these are available on the back, uh, um, on the, at the Connection Center. You can grab these. Uh, this is the first psalm that actually has a, an inscription at the top, um, uh, ascribing it to an author and giving us a, a, a situation for the psalm. Uh, this is a psalm of David. It's ascribed to David. Seventy-three psalms are ascribed to David. Uh, two other psalms, the New Testament then ascribes to David, which aren't ascribed to him uh, in, in, uh, in a superscription. And so, uh, 75 psalms, we believe, written uh, by David. Uh, so that would be one half of the Psalms. That's why people associate this book with David, uh, King David, more than more than any other author, even though he wrote half of them. He didn't write all of them, uh, but he wrote half of them. Uh, the, the other two that are ascribed to him are Psalm 2, according to Acts 4, Psalm 95, according to Hebrews chapter 4. Fourteen of these Psalms speak to events of his life, like this one, where it says that this is a, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. We're going to talk about those events uh, in just a, a moment, right? Um, David is... Um, it, it, when we meet David in in um, in First Samuel, he is uh, he's a shepherd, right? He's this young boy who uh, watches over his father's flocks, but he's also someone that Saul calls into his court to play a, a harp or some sort of stringed instrument. It may have been an, an early form of a of a guitar. I don't know. For those of you who think that the guitar is some sort of special instrument talking to my two sons now, right? Um, it may have been some early form of that, right? And he played that to, to, to soothe a king who, who was somewhat moody and agitated. And when David would, would sing these songs to the Lord, it would, it would soothe Saul's heart, right? And so we see David, this poet, who also grew into be this, this warrior, right? And if you're a Braveheart fan, and I don't know if, if you are, right? At the end of Braveheart, you get this idea or this statement, right? That the men in the last scene of Braveheart, they fought like what? Warrior poets. And that whole idea is fashioned after David, who is the original warrior poet, right? I studied under a guy when I was in seminary named Bruce Walkie. I don't talk about this type of stuff much, but Bruce Walke is the premier wisdom scholar of the last half of the 20th century. And um, this is a dude, I remember sitting behind Dr. Walke once, he was teaching on, um, on, on Isaac. And he was reading from, a, from what looked like a Bible, but he was reading a Hebrew text. But he was quoting it like it was an English text. I mean, this, this dude was, he's... But he would talk about David... And he would, say that, he would say that we look at Shakespeare 
as, as, the, as the ultimate form of, of, English, of the English language. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'll confess something to you right now. I don't understand Shakespeare. I've tried to read Shakespeare. I've gone and I've, I've, I've watched, um, you know, I've been in London with my kids and we've gone to the Globe Theater there and we've looked at the plays, we watched the plays, and none of it makes any sense to me. I, I think they don't even understand the language as if, like, what, this doesn't make any sense to me, right? But, but that Shakespeare is the, is the ultimate form of, in, of, of, of written English, right? But Walkie would say this all the time, that, that there is nothing in written language that compares to David in Hebrew. Now, Hebrew is not necessarily an attractive language to listen to, but there is nothing. Like, Billy Shakespeare does not hold a candle to David in his original language, right? So, when we read David in the Psalms, now, we we lose some of it because we're reading it in English, Right? So I'm not talking about King James David here, 1611, but David in Hebrew, in his original context, as he writes these, these psalms, as he writes these, these, these prayers, these, these songs, these poems, however they were originally constructed, are um, some of, if not the, greatest expressions of poetic literature that exist in the world. Um, and they also happen, uh, and I think this is of greater benefit, to declare the hope that he had in the Lord God and the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. Amen? Right? And so they're, they're, they're just beautiful forms of worship for us. This particular psalm, Psalm 3, describes an event in his life when he flees from his son Absalom. Right? Second Samuel, right? This, this event is a long event, really. Um, you might say, well, we could look at that if we just looked at 2 Samuel chapter 14 and 15. But really, it's, it begins in 2 Samuel chapter 13, goes all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 19, if you really want the full context of the event. And so, like, I'm a long-winded guy. Uh, we're not going to do all of that, all right? I'm going to save you that because I got other things to do today. You got other things to do today. Right? But I'll, I'll give you a brief synopsis of that, and I'm going to trust that you will go home and read 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 19. Some of you might, some of you won't. You should, right? Here's the beautiful thing about reading 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, uh, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, right? Uh, most of you, if you're like me, you like to binge watch things, right? I like to binge watch things. Most of the things I binge watch have nothing on what I actually read about in 1 and 2 Samuel. Like that stuff, that stuff is messed up in many ways. The stuff you read about in David's life. Like you think the stuff you watch, like you watch something and go, that was messed up. You read David's life, 1, 2 Samuel, 1, 2 Kings, 1, 2 Chronicles, messed up. The stuff that goes on there is messed up. People, people say, how come, how, come, how come, you know, polygamy is, is, is banned, you know, like David had multiple wives? This event, 2 Samuel, chapter 13, verses or 13 through 19, explains to us why you should only have one wife. David has multiple wives. We don't even know how many he has. 
He's got sons from multiple women. Exactly. (laughs) And this whole affair that we're going to talk about here happens because the son of one woman, Amnon, looks at the daughter of another woman, Tamar, and he wants her. But he can't have her because she's his sister. But he takes her anyway. And he violates her. And her brother, who's also his brother, but he's really just fully her brother because it's messed up, gets angry and seeks vengeance. And he kills. Her brother, Absalom, kills Amnon. They're, both, they're all the children of David. Think of the grief and the heartache. Right? As I was preparing for this, I looked for a chart like a family tree of David. I couldn't find one. Like I can fi- you can find it of like the, the, the house of Windsor and that's a messed up family. I couldn't find one on David's family. Messed up, right? So Absalom runs. David's right-hand man, Joab, the, the leader of his army, intercedes on behalf of Absalom and says to David, bring your son home. And so David relents. He's, he's mourned for Amnon. He recognizes that, that, that Amnon is not going to come back. And that, that okay, so he, he relents. And he says that Absalom can come home, but he can't come into my presence. And then after a period of time, he allows, then um, as Absalom um, begins to then manipulate Joab, he, he then allows Absalom to come into his presence. And then as Absalom is, is, is hanging out in Israel, he begins to manipulate the people and to turn the hearts of the people against David. And next thing you know, Absalom is rebelling against his father and turning the hearts of the people against his father to the point that then... David has to flee because the people want Absalom to be king and they don't want David to be king any longer. And this is the context that we have here where David is fleeing for his life because his son and his sons have turned on him. His people have turned on him. And even as you can read through the whole context of this thing, his own men in some ways, by the time you get to the end of it, they kind of turn on him. Everyone turns on him. And so David writes this psalm. The last thing I want to give you on the context before we get into it is the psalm is broken up into three parts, and those three parts are, are, are um, set apart by this word selah, right? And so you'll see that word as you read through the psalms. Uh, people have started to name their children this word. Um, it's, an, it's a, it's a it's a somewhat undefined musical term, and it really just means it's a rest. You know, so if I was a musical conductor, it's a rest. It's a time in the psalm to just stop and to think about what has been said. Right? So when we, when we read the first 
lines here. Um, a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation in him, for him in God. Selah. That's a moment for us to stop and to just consider what has been said. To not just continue reading on. Right? So when you see that word as you're reading through the Psalms, that's what that word is causing you to do. To take a breath and to stop and to consider. And to not be like me, who in my normal life just rolls right on through things. All right? So, nonetheless. All right? So, let's, let's look at this. this. This psalm is broken up for us into, into three sections. All right? So, the first one, David is surrounded by doubters. He's surrounded by oppressors. He's surrounded by these people who are saying to him, by the time we get to the end of, of verse 2, that there is no salvation for him in God. Right? These oppressors, um, right? This idea of foes, right? Many, many foes, right? The idea here is that he's, he is surrounded by, by these foes and that they're not just um, there, but that they're increasing, that they're continuously multiplying, right? It's like compounding interest. It's something that is not only there, but it is um, every moment, it is, in, it is, it is increasing. Right? It's like ants coming out of an anthill. You just, they're just not going away. Right? And, and they're surrounding him. Right? I, I, I listed them a moment ago in, in the context that he's in. His son, Absalom. His counselor, Ahithophel. Right? Oh, there's a name. Right? If you want to name your kid a biblical name and bother him for the rest of his life and screw him up in, in classes on the first day of school, name him Ahithophel. Don't do that. The people of Israel, right? They turn on him, right? He's been their king for, 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 for years by this point in time. He's, he's older now. And he's been a faithful king for the most part, right? He's been faithful to them, right? He, he's had moments of infidelity in his relationship with the Lord God. Right? And that infidelity has affected them. And so you could maybe say that they have reason to turn on him. But they've turned on him because Absalom has come and sowed discord. And then, by, again, like I said, by the time that you get to, to, to Samuel 19, you see that Joab begins to, to turn on him. To the point where um, when, when David... Um, when David's men go out to defend him, he tells them, just don't, don't harm my son. Absalom has rebelled against me, but don't harm my son. Right? He's done horrific things against me, but he's still my son. He killed my other boy who hurt my daughter, but they're still my sons. I don't understand this. I'll be honest with you. I've got boys. I've got a daughter. They they. they they, they do things that sometimes oppose the things I've asked them to do, but I would never want any of them harmed, right? They've never done those types of things. Like, they've done things that I don't like. They've violated the things that I've said, to, but they've never violated one another. And but, but Joab kills Absalom, 
right? Absalom apparently looks like Aquaman, right? He's got this long flowing hair. You shouldn't have long flowing hair because he's riding a mule and he gets caught in a tree. It's his fault. You shouldn't have long flowing hair. I'm a firm believer. Keep telling my kid all the time, cut your hair, dude. It's going to come back to bite you one of these days. Gets caught in a tree, he's hanging from the tree because he looks like Aquaman. Joab comes and they kill him. They violate what David asked them to do, and as a matter of fact, then it ends up costing Joab his job. And so David says, many are these people that come against me. They increase every day. They're coming from every side. Some are obvious. Some are not so obvious. Many are these foes. How many are my foes? And notice who he's addressing his, his lament to, his complaint to. He's not addressing it to a counselor. He's not addressing it to um, his wife, whichever wife that might be, right? I address most of my laments to Levi. He's not addressing it to Levi. He's addressing it to Yahweh. Oh, Lord. I mean, he has started off personally. This is a very personal prayer. And so the very first thing that Psalm 3 teaches us is that Because David is in relationship with the Lord God, he can come right there. Boom. I'm bringing it right here. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. How many are my foes? They're coming all around me. And you want to know what they're saying, God? They're saying that you will let me down. They're saying I shouldn't hope in you, oh, Lord. They're saying the same thing that the snake told Eve that I shouldn't trust you. Because that's the oldest trick in the book. That's the deal, right? That you can't be trusted, right? It's not so much that they're, they're, they're saying that David is unable. They're saying that there is no salvation for him in God. They're, they're, they're asking me, they're imploring me to doubt you, oh Lord. Now you'll notice at the end of the psalm that David declares loudly, salvation belongs to the Lord, right? So it starts off like the doubters are saying there's no salvation for him in God, right? But it ends in that there is salvation, and that salvation belongs to the Lord, Now, you and I, we find ourselves in similar situations. Again, contextually, this psalm is written by a man somewhere around 1,000 B.C., right? And he's he's a man who is in relationship with the Lord God because the Lord God brought him into relationship with himself. Then these psalms, they're organized by a group of people years later, Hundreds of years later, another group of people come and they organize these these psalms, right, Uh, during the exile. And, And those people, they have experienced 
the, the, the faithfulness of the Lord God, and, and although they're in a, in a dire situation during the exile, they look forward with a hopeful expectation that the Lord would bring a king uh, like David who would deliver them from oppression once again. They look forward with a messianic hope, right? And so they organize these psalms into, into 150, right? They take 150 psalms. They organize them into five books, right? And so when we read these psalms, we read it understanding what David was thinking. We read it understanding what, what, what the, the, the folks in the exile were thinking, this messianic expectation. But we get to read this understanding this, that Jesus, our king, right, he has once and for all delivered his people. He has once and, all, once and for all freed us from the bondage of sin. He's once and for all, right, taken those oppressors that come in and say there's no salvation for you in God. And he has produced in his own body, in his own flesh, and with his own blood, salvation for us. Right? And so we get to, to, to pray this prayer, to sing this song, right, through, through the lens or through the experience of, of being the redeemed in Christ. And yet at the same time, we have moments of doubt. We have a reality of salvation, a reality of redemption, a reality of knowing, of, of, of knowing that our God has provided for us in His Son salvation, redemption, restoration, hope, deliverance. And yet when we look out into the circumstances of our life at times, it seems like there are oppressors coming towards us that say there is no salvation for you. There's no salvation for you. There may, be, there may be for those people, but look at those people. Like they wear flowery dresses and they do the right thing. But you? Not you. Not you. Or maybe there's circumstances in your life that are just difficult. Right? When, when my wife was, was sick, Psalm 3 for me was a beacon of hope, right? As, as news after news after news of just devastating news came, 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 right? Because here's the deal. When we read Psalm 3, David's children still die, right? Amnon dies. Absalom dies. His kingdom they, the people still turn on him, right? We're going to see in a moment about circumstances, right? And yet his hope in the Lord doesn't waver. And that leads us to this second part here. That in the midst of this, David says this in verse 3, but you, O Lord, like these things, they come crushing in, Right? Everything is crushing in on me, right? And, and they're, they're, they're telling me that there's no hope for him in God. There's no deliverance for him in, in God. That God will not deliver you this time, David. 
But my attention and my focus is not on them. My attention and my focus is on you, Lord. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. Let's take those two verses and let's just break them apart. Number one, but you, O Lord, again, he's personally addressing the Lord, using his name, Yahweh, but you, Yahweh, are a shield about me, right? This idea of a shield. He, he, he uses this, this, this idea of a, of a Hebrew shield, this, right? He, when I think of shield, I think of a big shield, right? You're a big shield, right? He uses this word of a little shield, right? Like little shield, right? This, this, uh, this, this Hebrew shield, it's a small wooden shield. But then he says, but you're a shield about me, around me, right? Like there isn't, there isn't anything about my life or, or, or in my life, there isn't anything in my circumstances in which you are a shield that encircles me before, behind, above, right? You are a shield. So they can come after me, this can come after me, that can come after me. But you encircle me, Lord. You protect me, right? And so for those of us who are in Christ, right? The blood of Christ, right? The shed blood of Jesus and and the benefits therein, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God who now dwells within us, the power of the Spirit, that is a shield about us. So when the enemy comes after and says, not you, there's no way you, oh Lord, you are a shield about me, right? Paul picks up this same language in Ephesians when he says, you know, when he's talking about the armor of God, right? He talks about the shield of faith, right? That I've I've placed my faith Faith, which is a gift, but I, 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 the shield. So that when the enemy throws these, art, these darts at me, these arrows, they're extinguished. Because the Lord is defending me. I'm not defending myself. I'm not warding these things off. He says that he's my glory. Right? Now it's not, commentators have varying opinions. Is this my glory? Like a human glory? I think it's really a vision of God's glory. Right? The glorious one. Right? The one that I get to serve. The one that I get to serve. And, and that in being in relationship with him, I understand then who I am. And the lifter of my head. Right? There's a very interesting moment in, in 2 Samuel 15. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, David goes up to the Mount of Olives. Right? And he goes up to the Mount of Olives and his head is covered. Right? So this is in this narrative. When he's, when he's fleeing Jerusalem, he, he leaves Jerusalem 
right? Because Absalom is coming in, and he leaves Jerusalem, and he goes up to the Mount of Olives, and his head is covered, and he's contrite, and he begins to pray, right? And they, they, they're, they're going to bring with him the ark, and he sends it back. He sends the Ark of the Covenant back to, to the city, right? Because he wants the presence of the Lord to be in his holy hill. Notice verse 4, right? I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, right? So the idea of, of David going up to the Mount of Olives in a contrite position, and the Lord being the one who lifts his head Right? He's not arrogant about his relationship with the Lord, even though he's, even though he's saying, uh, he's addressing him by name. Oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord. Even though he's confident to come into his presence, he comes in contrite. And the Lord is the one who, who then lifts his head. Right? The Lord who is the, who is the king. Right? Here's David, an earthly king, but the Lord is the one who, who then lifts the head of the, of the one in a contrite position, and in lifting his head, he, is, he, he gives him the approval, right? He says, I, I, I approve of you because you are my son. You are the one I've chosen. I, I lift your head, right? Because I am yours and you are mine. And in the same way, for those of us who are in Christ, right? He's the lifter of our head, right? When the enemy is coming after and saying, not you, no way, not you. When he's shaming us, reminding us, it's Jesus who comes and says, I have purchased you. I have loved you. I am giving you a new name. Right? He's the lifter of my head. Not in an arrogant way. Not in a way that causes me to bow out my chest. I can't even bow my chest out beyond my gut. Why would I even do that? But in a way that, that allows me to look into the face of the one who loves me. And to recognize that I'm loved. That I'm redeemed. Right? That I've been purchased back. Right? That He is my glory. I have no glory on my own. He is my glory. He is my shield. He's my defender. I cried out and He answered me from His holy hill. My circumstances do not define my reality. David teaches us this. Psalm 3 teaches us this, right? Jesus teaches me this. God does. I wrote this statement years and years ago. I was teaching, it's some, I don't know if you remember this, years and years ago. My circumstances don't define my reality. Long before my wife ever got sick, I wrote this, and then God taught me this. My circumstances don't define my reality. God does. His character, his nature, his promises. Those are the things that define us as a people, right? 
And then God allows these circumstances to shape us and to work out his, um, uh, his desires in our lives. His purposes, his power, who he is and what he does, those are the things that define us as a people. Psalm 3 reminds us of a secure worldview in relationship with the Lord who created us, who redeems us, and who sustains us, right? But understand, a secure worldview is not always a, a, a worldview that feels safe or comfortable, right? As David is praying these things, as you and I pray these things, there are times where those, those oppressors are still coming in. They're coming in, they're coming in. And yet, look at what David prays in, in verse 5. Right? Nothing's changed. They're still coming in, right? And yet he's able to say this. I lay down and I slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. And I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Right? He remembers that the Lord is the one who is his shield about him. So he's able to sleep. Right? He's not, he's not laying up at night fretting. He's able to sleep anywhere. Right? He's able to sit in that seat. Just put his arms right here. Right? People ask me all the time, how do you, how do, you do with an airplane? I just... Stick my hands right in my armpits, put a little pressure, and fall right asleep. I'm generally asleep before the plane leaves the gate. Snoring away. Secure. I don't worry about a thing. Right? If the plane goes down, I go to heaven. It's not a big thing. Right? No big deal. I will not be afraid. Verse 7, arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Who are the wicked? We saw who the wicked are in Psalm 1. They are the ones that reject the Lord God and reject his law and his word. And salvation belongs to the Lord. And he brings us all back. Your blessings be on your people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Because David trusts the Lord. Because we, the people of God, trust the Lord. His character, his promises. Even in spite of our circumstances, I can sleep well. I can rest well. Right? I don't have to worry because the Lord is the one who sustains, right? He's the one who holds me in his hand, right? The one, Colossians chapter 1 talks about Jesus being the one who not only created all things and not only redeems all things, but also the one who sustains all things and holds all things in his hand. And I can rest as one who has been created, right, by, by the one who then knows this creation as one who's then been redeemed 
by him as also one who is being sustained by him. And I don't have to worry. It doesn't mean I don't seek wisdom about decisions that I make in my life. It doesn't mean that I don't think about things and try to make the best decision. But ultimately, I'm being sustained by the Lord. And even though there, there are things that press in and press in, and even though circumstances in my life and circumstances in your life may bring about hardship and suffering, I'm still sustained in the midst of those things. It doesn't mean that I come through unscathed. David, right, as he flees from Absalom, lost Lost much. He lost two sons. Right? He lost the trust of his army. He had to regain the trust of much of his kingdom. Right? He lost much. But he continued to trust the Lord in the midst of it. In in my life, in your life, because of what Christ has accomplished, in spite of whatever goes on, in spite of whatever circumstances God allows us to traverse, we can go through them, we can endure them, recognizing that He will be a shield about us. In spite of the doubters and the accusers, the psalmist is confident that the Lord will save, that the Lord will sustain, that the Lord will bless him. And not just him, but all of God's people. Right? The psalm ends, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on all your people. Right? This isn't just an individual thing, right? David isn't just praying about himself, right? As we engage these psalms and as we engage the Lord, it's not just an individual thing. Christianity was never intended to be a Jesus and me thing. It was always intended to be, right? That I I am, am brought into a relationship with the Lord God through the, the, the blood of Christ and, and I'm brought into a community of people. I'm brought into the body of Christ. And I begin to engage the Lord God and I begin to engage His people. Right? And my concern is not just for what's going on in my life. My concern becomes to be about what's going on in the life of my family. Not just wife, children, parents, brothers, sisters, but the family of God. The people of God. There becomes this larger concern for what God is doing in in, and among his people, right? And David expresses this. So, one last thing I want to draw your attention to before we close, at least with regard to this psalm. You'll notice towards the end, David prays about his enemies. And you may think, ooh, (laughs) I've got a list of people. 
I would like to pray some judgment down on. I'd like to smash some teeth. Jesus has already instructed me what to do with my enemies. And that's to love them. Right? But the Lord has enemies. Right? And he's going to judge his enemies. Because he's a king. And he's going to do what kings do to their enemies. I'm not a king. So I'm going to do what Jesus has instructed me to do with my enemies. I'm going to pray for them. And I'm going to entrust them to, to my heavenly Father who judges justly. Right? So when I read Psalm chapter or Psalm 3, verse 7, for you will strike all my enemies on the cheek and you will break the teeth of the wicked. I'm not thinking of people. Right? I'm not thinking of like X person who wronged me when I was in the eighth grade and God is going to bring about my retribution. Yeah! Those are, fa- those, those are faceless names, faceless people to me. Here's what, I, here's what I'm understanding as I read that. That God will vindicate himself because he has declared that he will vindicate himself. Right? And I trace this all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Right? Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. That God's going to judge the seed of the serpent right? through the seed of the woman. He's promised that, and that, that traces a line all the way through, right? And so I can pray Psalm 3-7, recognizing that God will judge his enemies, and I can rest in that, right? So I'm not, I'm not personalizing that as, ooh, I've got, I've got a list, and God is going to bring about, you know, my bucket list of judgment on my enemies. No. Jesus has instructed me as to what to do to my enemies. And that's to love them in his name. Seek to serve them in his name. And share the gospel with them. And and that's that's that. Um, In closing, if you are here this morning and you do not yet know the Lord Jesus, there is hope for you in him and in him alone, through the blood and the body of Jesus, who is a king, who rules over all and reigns over all. And he loves you. If you're here this morning and you are one of Christ's people, and yet there is in your life sin that is just consuming you, and you feel that there is no salvation for you, like there is no deliverance for you from it. Maybe that's the better way to put it. Right? And that God can't, God can't get you out of this. Right? There is hope for you in Jesus. There is hope for you in Jesus. Right? Repent of your sin. Cling to Jesus. Recognize that he is a shield about you, that he is your glory and he is the lifter of your head, right? And that salvation belongs to him and him alone, right? Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you 
We thank you for these prayers. We thank you for the hope that they teach us. That regardless of the circumstances of our life, regardless of the difficulty of our life, regardless of the the things that we walk in and through, hardship, suffering, sin, the effects of sin. David was in the in a, in, a, in a horrific situation as he wrote these words because of the effects of his horrific decisions. Sinful decisions. And yet you remain faithful. In spite of us, you are faithful to what you have always declared. And so Lord, I pray that we, your people, would trust you. That we wouldn't trust ourselves or our own righteousness or our own ability to please you, but that we would trust in you, our great King, and you alone. And that Psalm 3 would be a corrective and a reminder every day that we look at it, every opportunity that we look at it, of who you are in the difficulty of our life when, when sin or doubt or difficulty press in on us, of who you are and what you've done and how you deliver and that we would trust in you. Not that we would trust harder, not that we would do better, but that we would trust in you and that we would rest in who you are and what you've done. Lord, if there are any in this room this morning that you're calling to yourself to trust in you, maybe for the first time, I pray that today would be the day of salvation and that they would place their hope in Jesus, that they would repent of sin, turn from sin, and say, Jesus, save me. Save me. Father, if there are those in this room that feel the crushing weight of continuing sin, that they would repent and say, Jesus, forgive me. If there are those in this room that are struggling with difficulty, oh Lord, that they would cry to you, that you would hear from your holy hill, that you would be a shield about them, that you'd be their glory and the lifter of their head. Father, that we would remember day in and day out that salvation belongs to you and to you alone. Glorify yourself in and among your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.